Um, we, uh, man, I just think of that line, affected by his greatness. What does that mean? What would that look like if our lives were affected, marked by, in the way we lived and talked, by the greatness of our, of our God, living in light of the reality of that? We want to give you a chance after the message. Uh, we, we periodically do a thing we call five and five for prayer request time. Uh, we want to talk about how we're affected by his greatness, the need for our God and to be affected and, and to praise him for what he's done in our lives. So if you have a prayer request or a praise, uh, you can be thinking on that. Mostly listen to me when I'm preaching, but you can also a little bit if I'm taking a breath. Yeah, like that ever happens. Uh, you can be uh, thinking about a prayer request or a praise and we'll come back around to that. Um, today we're going to be in Matthew. Matthew. If you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 23. The English Standard Version will be on the screen, but welcome to follow along in, on your phone or your, your uh, book. And uh, I grew up in, in this church. I was, came up here in 1985 with my parents. I was, oops, not yet. Uh, I, I, was, I started the nursery known as Justin Whaler because uh, of how loud and, and often my pipes were being used and haven't really changed much since then. Uh, eventually graduated to the youth group, not a big transition, but I became a part of the student leadership team in the youth group, and, and two of my best friends, Jacob and Luke, and, and here's Bethany, and there were a few others, Laura and some others on that leadership team, and this may not come as a shock to you, um, but these three, the, the teenage males on the screen here, we didn't always make the best life choices, okay? I know, I know. We thought pretty highly of ourselves, like we were the bee's knees, if you will, and uh, we could get pretty carried away with ourselves and sarcasm. Uh, gladly, I don't struggle with that anymore, um, but we, we could be really disrespectful to the adult leaders and especially the other girls in the youth group, probably because we didn't understand how to just simply say, I like you, <laughs> was probably part of the problem there. But uh, one of our leaders uh, at the time, John Thornton, here he is rocking out in the late 90s, um, he, man, I, there was a leadership meeting where he lit into us, into Jacob and Luke and I, I mean, tarred and feathered us about how poorly we had been treating other people, how arrogantly we had been acting. Now, we were posing as spiritual leaders in the group, right? We were at all the youth group events. We were at service projects. We were leading worship. We were even teaching lessons. But at the same time, we were treating all the people around us like garbage, we, we were hypocrites, right? We were singing, shout to the Lord, all the earth. It was 1999, so that's what we were singing. And, and, and outwardly, right, we're claiming Jesus, but we're acting like Satan, Satan, Satan. And so why did John light into us? It wasn't because he hated us. It was actually because he loved us. It was a gracious wake-up call warning us that we were heading in the wrong direction. It was hard to hear, but boy, did it do us some long-term good, arguably. Um, Matthew 23, we see a very similar thing going on. There are some who have called this the most devastating passage in all four Gospels. If you remember where we're at in our study, um, this is part five, the clash of the kingdoms, where we see um, the Pharisees and Jesus in this showdown. And we see the world's kingdom pitted against God's kingdom. And, and we saw in chapter 21, Jesus judges the Pharisees and the leaders at that time as he flips tables, he curses the Pharisee fig tree, and, and Jesus then moves into chapter 22 where he starts speaking in parables. And he starts out a little subtle, telling, telling stories about vineyards and wedding feasts, but, the, but really the subtext there is, you are the bad guys, Pharisees, in this. Your hearts are wicked. And what he started out with vague, he becomes very blunt in Matthew chapter 23 here. He just publicly declares them proud 
hypocrites. If it's 2020, Jesus is canceling the Pharisees. Um, It's like if he came today and rounded up all the pastors in our country and just said, nope. And this is is not everybody. We know there's Nicodemus. There are some few that follow Jesus. But by and large, he's calling them out. And we're going to read seven or eight woes today. And we're going to see some of the strongest language that ever leaves Jesus' lips. And it's undoubtedly building toward the... this, This is probably the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Pharisees that leads to them wanting to crucify um, Jesus. But the question is, why is he so harsh specifically with the leaders here, the Pharisees and the scribes? He's harder on them than anybody else. Now, they've rejected Jesus and his claims, but so have others in Israel. Why is he so spicy with them in particular? Well, I think there's two things to to look at. One is their position. Their position. Why was John so strident with Jacob and Luke and I? Well, because we were leaders, and surely we weren't the only guys in the youth group that were making poor choices, but he knew as we go, the rest of the youth group goes. They're watching us, they're following us, the younger ones. And so similarly here, these are Israel's leaders. As they go, the nation goes, the younger one, the little ones, they're watching, they're being influenced, they're following these leaders. That's why Jesus said, if you mislead a child, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be hurled into the sea. This guy's taking it pretty well, to be fair, but um, he says, James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Or, or j- just as well said, if you've watched Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Actually, a quote from the French Revolution, but we like to think it's Spider-Man, so that's cool. Um, why are they... I mean, that's, that's why we are so careful, we're so serious about who we put in the leadership of the church. To be pastors, to be shepherds over a flock entrusted with people's lives. Was, number one was because of their position. But the, the second thing we see is because of their pride. Their pride. It's been said that pride is the mother of all sin. The mother of all sin. From cover to cover, the Bible could not be more clear. James 4 says it this way, God opposes the proud, and you do not want God opposed to you. Um, Why is God so harsh with the proud? Well, we know in reality, God is the only one that's worthy to sit on his throne, right? He's the only one worthy to be worshipped, the only one worthy of being elevated to that position. But what pride does is it tries to elevate oneself. It's self-exaltation, to lift yourself up, to be absorbed with yourself that you are the reference point. The word literally meant excessive shining, right? That you're trying to shine brighter and brighter for the world to see. And so what God says is, I'm sorry, that throne has already been taken. And I'm not interested in anybody else taking it from me. And now you might say, I've never tried to take God's throne. Like, I wouldn't even want to be the mayor of Sultana. So, so how would you say that I'm exalting myself? Well, self-exaltation takes many different forms. And ultimately, it's, it's saying, I want to make myself look good. That's why we call it self righteousness. I want to be right. I want to be the one in control. I want to be the one that does what I want to do. And we all struggle with that. But deep down, here's the deal. We know deep down that we're not good. We, we know deep down that we're not right. We have a conscience that reminds us of, the, of that constantly. And we know that we're not ultimately in control. And so pride will inevitably lead you down one of two paths. The first path would be failure and despair. 
When we see that we are not right ourselves, we, be, we can become so racked with guilt and anxiety that it leads us to a deep, dark place. The other path, the other option, is false righteousness, or what we would call hypocrisy, where if we can't actually be a sheep, we can be a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? We can be a, a righteousness poser. If we can't truly be good, then we can just fake it, right? And we live in an extremely image-conscious society, and we see that in no place more clearly than social media. We, we desperately want to be seen, we want to be approved of, we want to be validated, and we want to be loved. So we're going to post a picture of us in just the right light so we look skinny, right? We look good. We're going to take a picture of our family for that, on that trip for the two seconds we were actually smiling and pretending to love each other. That's the one we happen to post. Right? Or we want to show how much we know. And so we're going to post an article that shows that we're a pandemic expert. If only I was the president, everything would be cool, right? And so God, if God isn't going to approve of what's really on the inside, we can at least trick people into approving what's on the outside. And so this is what we do. We manufacture an image of ourselves, pretending to be something that we know we are not. So to summarize it, I would say it this way. Pride's goal is to elevate yourself. And, and so the motivation becomes praise from men, not ultimately from God. We, we want other people to validate what, they, what at least we're projecting ourselves to be. And the result is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. We put on a false front that other people might praise, might validate, might approve, or we go toward despair. Now, the reason Jesus uses his strongest, most severe language for the scribes and Pharisees is that we see here their position as leaders. We see their pride, where instead of pointing Israel toward their true king, toward Jesus on the throne, they're trying to exalt themselves. But ultimately, we're going to see this morning that these strong words are for their own protection. He says some strong things, but just like John to us in the youth group, he's saying them because he loves them and in hopes that they would turn from their sin and hypocrisy. I want to issue a word of warning before we get into the text. Don't read this passage, don't hear this passage with someone else in mind. I hope she's listening, that Pharisee, right? Otherwise, we join these Pharisees in their hypocrisy. God, we want to ask you, what in love do you need to show us about our hearts, my heart, this morning. Matthew 23, we're going to first see a warning about the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now notice he's talking to the crowd and disciples about the Pharisees. That's where he starts, and he issues some warnings. One of them we see is that they say one thing, the Pharisees do, but they do another. Look at verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. He says they, they do one thing, they say one thing, they do another. So do as they say, not as they do. Now, notice that he does say to obey them. And why does he say to obey them? Well, he says they sit on Moses' seat. 
the seat of Moses, which actually could have been literal. They, they have found um, kind of some synagogue ruins and, and found this seat that may have been uh, called the seat of Moses, where the teacher would, would sit. But if nothing else, we know this is figurative. The seat of meant the successor of. They are doing what Moses had originally been doing with the people. That's where he teaches and explains God's revealed word. That's what a pastor or an elder or a professor seminary, at seminary would do today. So they're teaching God's word. He says, obey that, but they surely aren't living it out themselves. So do not follow their example. And next he gives an example of the way they don't live this out. The next warning is they demand a standard that they don't keep. It says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So imagine that you went into REI and you're talking to the salesman. You're ready to gear up and go on a long backpacking trip. And you need an expert to say, what do I need to go on this backpacking trip? And, and of course, the salesman finds you the largest and conveniently the most expensive backpack in the store. And he gives you this big old pack. And then he starts chucking all these things in that you need. Here's a tent. And here's a sleeping bag. And here's a camp stove you need when you're backpacking. And here's the, the new North Face fondue set. Everybody's doing it, right? You're going to need to backpack. Now you go... You, you're being weighed down and you're looking going, do you take all this when you're hiking? And he's like, of course not. I'm not an idiot, right? In fact, I've never even been on a hike myself. You're like, what? Can I get a new salesman, please? Right? The Pharisees kept weighing down the people and chucking all these extra rules onto God's law. But what Jesus is exposing here is they never even went on a hike themselves. They're not keeping what they're demanding. And it's funny how we always demand things from others that we don't actually do ourselves. Like I'll find myself going, why isn't Jill always thinking about me and my feelings? Like I'm always thinking about hers, right? Or, or, or my, why is my friend still struggling with that sin? Like let's go, get over that. And maybe I'm not struggling with that one, but there's 18 other ones that I am still struggling with and have been for years. They demanded a standard they didn't keep. And then, and then lastly, they did deeds to be seen by others. I get this from verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. What in the world is a broad phylactery? I'm glad you asked. Um, this was in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, God said, he, he called the people to remember his words, his laws, his commandments, and to follow them. And he says in Deuteronomy 6, 8, wear them on your forehead as reminders. Now, some of them took this literally, and these phylacteries were these leather bands with cases in them that would actually contain prayers and God's commands them, themselves. Now, we of course know that wasn't the ultimate point. When he says, hide my word in your heart, he doesn't mean get John 3.16 tattooed on your pumper, right? What's he saying? I want, to, I want you to memorize it, and I want you to be embedded in the truth of it, to meditate on it and live in it. But they, not only did they put these things on their foreheads, but they made them broad. They made them big. Like, they put, like, it was like 96 font, like an old person's cell phone. They got three words on the screen, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, sorry. Um, but they, they wanted to, why did they want to make them so big? So that everybody could see them. Look at my broad phylactery. And then they made their fringes long. Their fringes long. So again, we go back to the Old Testament. Numbers 15. Speak to the people of Israel, God told Moses, and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. 
Why? Shall be a, a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Get him, God. He says here, this is intended to remind you that you don't follow your own heart in your own way. You trust and obey God. But what had happened here is these people took this reminder and, and they used it for different motivation. And they made these long tassels they were twirling around. And they're like, hey, ladies, check out my prayer tassels, right? Look how holy I am. And, and what's happening here is they're, making, they're taking a good thing and they're making it about themselves. And we see this now in verse 6. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They're relishing this place. It's like as a pastor today, if I was like, you know, I want the primo parking spot right up front, like right in front of the double doors. And I want a little heated shed to put over my car for the winter time. When I come in, I, I expect to have a lazy boy right front and center for me to sit in with some iced beverages to sip on while we're worshiping. It's orange juice, right? We're not Lutheran. Come on here. Um, but and I, want you, I want you to call me reverend. No, supreme potentate, right? And, and what, am, what am I doing? I want to be, and this is what pride does. It tries to elevate itself and the motivators to get praise from other people. Because we know God's not going to be duped by, the show, by our show. And so status before other people becomes everything. And I want comfort in my life. And I want approval from other people. I want power and control over other people. And I like what Charles Price, he says it this way. He says, the measure in which we need others to see and approve our walk with God is the measure of its unreality. In other words, how fake it is. How much I need other people to see by spirituality shows how fake the spirituality is. He says, true spirituality finds its security in an intimacy with God that requires no human approval to be valid. I don't need other people to see this. It's not why I'm doing it. So see, you can do good things. You can come to church. You can donate money. You can help someone in need. Um, you, you, can, you can pray with someone. But if my motivation is pride, man, did you see how much I gave this week? Do you see how often I show up to church? Did you hear that awesome prayer I just prayed for that person? And it says it's fake and it doesn't honor God because it's not done in relationship with him and for him. So imagine I, I drag Jill up here on a Sunday morning. It'd be her worst nightmare. And I pull her up and I say, Jill, I just wanted to let you know with everybody watching, I have this really expensive gift for you. Isn't that nice of me? And Jill, I just wanted you to hear this poem I wrote for you with everybody listening. And if my love for you was an ocean, it would take 23 airplanes to go across. I'd just really woo her. And then I'd say, you know, and I wanted to pray for you. And so I prayed this beautiful prayer for her. I do all these things. And then we get home and she's like, thank you so much. I said, don't talk to me. I'm watching sports. Right? And, and, and so what, what, what am I evidencing in my heart? That was all a show. I wanted everyone to think that I'm a great husband. But in reality, there's no relationship there. And so the question for us with our relationship with God is, what am I doing when no one else is watching? Is, is my spirituality just a show to be seen by other people, to be proved of and validated? Or is it done out of a heart of love for God himself? And then he turns from warnings about the Pharisees and has some direct words with the Pharisees. Secondly, we see woe to the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to see seven times in this passage, he says, woe. I always think of the, the old Blossom show with Joey. Whoa! 
Any other 90s kids? All right. Um, the, the word in the Old Testament, we see these blessings and woes. The word woe is like this public denouncement of, of, a, of a curse or disapproval or judgment. And we see in the Old Testament this pattern uh, prophetically that there was blessings for obeying the law and there were curses for disobeying the law. Woe to you who do not follow God's way. And of course, Moses was the one who delivered these words, these commandments to God's people, Israel. And we see them in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, if you've been following along with us in Matthew, you know that Matthew is is showing Jesus to be the the true fulfillment of the the ultimate Moses. And so we see a comparison here again that that Jesus, just like the five books of Moses in the Old Testament, there are five major teachings in the book of Matthew that Jesus gives. Now, interestingly, the first one, remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, was what? It started out with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And here we're going to see him end. He started with eight blessings. And in this last teaching that begins in this chapter, we see him call out the Pharisees with seven woes or curses. So just like in the first five books, the Pentateuch, it starts with blessings, ends with woes. That's exactly what Jesus does here too. And it's not by mistake that Matthew lays it out like that. Now, um, if you do have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 23, verse 14. Okay? Matthew 23, verse 14, and put your finger on it and raise your hand when you got verse 14. Oh, wait. wait. So some of you, some of you, do you know you have a verse 14? Okay, so verse 14, if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, it's in your Bible most likely. If you don't, it's most not not likely not there. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on here? Um, which is really too bad because guess what? That would have given us eight blessings and eight woes. That'd be so much more symmetrical. <laughs> and all God's OCD people said, right? That'd have been amazing. And there's actually, a, in your sermon notes, I, I broke down the, the comparison of the eight blessings and these eight woes. Now, verse 14, uh, which is in some translations, says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, this verse is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. It is, however, found in many manuscripts uh, that we do have. And so many translators have just erred on the side of caution by not including it in there. You might see it in a footnote in your Bible. But these contents that we just read, they're found in other, other places in Scripture. So this verse isn't super controversial. just wanted you to know why that wouldn't be in there. Um, but I, I want to highlight a couple of these for time's sake right now. Um, first of all, majoring on the minors. Majoring on the minors. Look at what Ma- uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, strain out a gnat and swallowing, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So in the Old Testament, God had told his people to tithe, which means to give 10% of um, what they produced. That would honor God and the priests have got to eat, right? And so there was this hot debate at the time between these pharisaical schools about what you tithe and what you didn't. And one of the, the hot debates was on spices, hot Spicy, okay. Um, Some said you would tithe your dill and cumin, but you didn't tithe your mint. Other people would say you tithed all three, unless it was black cumin 
it got pretty rowdy in those debates. Um, this is like saying today, like, well, maybe you tithe your net, but I tithe my gross. Right? You give 10%, I give 20%. Now, notice what Jesus is saying. He didn't say don't tithe. He's not saying don't give. In fact, he says, these you ought to have done. These you, it's good to tithe, but not when you neglect the weightier matters. He says, you even, those who would have been the most extreme would have been tithing all three. Because even if you're doing all that by the letter, even going above and beyond, if you're neglecting what, what matters more? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you've missed the point. There was a poster in my Bible school uh, that had these two missionaries splitting a hair. This isn't the picture, but uh, they were splitting this hair. And in the background, there were these people um, in flames, like as though they were burning in hell. It was a little graphic, but the point was we can lose perspective in the church where we fight and argue over the dumbest things, the color of the carpet, the style of worship music, and we completely neglect the dying world around us. There's a much bigger thing going on here. And so we ask ourselves, Man, do, maybe is, am I in the place where I give the right amount? In fact, maybe I give double what a lot of people give. But then I'm, am I living wrong the rest of the week? Do I give right but live wrong? It's, it's, it's one thing to do with the outward motions. But if I'm treating people like garbage, if I'm not loving them and pointing them to Jesus, my words and actions, we have neglected the weightier matters. And then the last principle here, my projected life versus my private life. My projected life versus my private life. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, while outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I remember I, in Bible school I was assigned a lesson on this and uh, so I made this beautiful-looking cake on the outside. And then I got one of my friend's dogs and um, used its excrement uh, to make a cake on the inside <laughs> to make this point that it looked beautiful on the outside, but you certainly wouldn't want to eat what was on the And I didn't pass it out to anybody, don't worry. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it was gross. Um, so what does it mean? What does it mean to look good on the outside, to have that clean cup, to be a whitewashed tomb, but inside to be dirty and dead? I think it means that my projected life, the way that, that I want other people to see me, it doesn't match up with my private life, what's really going on in my head, in my heart, in my motives. See, I want everyone to see that I'm a church-going, tax-paying, clean-cut, God-fearing, good boy. But what's really going on, on the inside? If you looked at someone's credit card statements, how do they really live their life? What do they really spend their money on? If, if you looked in their web browser history, what are they, what are they, what are they looking at when no one else is watching? If you looked at some late night text messages that were sent out, what are, what's in them and, and whom are they sent to? If you heard their unspoken thoughts about other people, if you looked at the way they spent their time, it would show you what they're really about. 
See, I can make it look like I'm doing God's will, but really, I'm just doing what I want. And this is what he's comparing, doing God's will versus my own will. He says there's this hypocrisy here, you Pharisees, that you're projecting one thing, but inwardly, you're lawless. You're not obeying God. There's greed and self-indulgence. You tell everybody that you're doing what God wants, but really, really, you're doing whatever you want. And to elevate yourself. So we examine our hearts here. We examine our own hearts as we hear these hard words that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. And then we turn our hearts to Jesus, which is always the solution. Our protector. Our protector. If this chapter was a movie, there'd be a lot of words being bleeped out back then. Like these words that Jesus says to the Pharisees in these woes, child of hell, murderers, fools, blind guides, hypocrites, brood of vipers, that might not sound like uber intense to us today, but back then that was explicit language that he was using. Now those are his words, but here is his heart. I love the way this passage ends. He says in verse 37, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And he's, he's talking directly to the Pharisees here. And what does he say? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He says, I'm like a hen and a fire would gather its chicks under its wings to absorb the fire itself before it would allow its ch- chicks to be killed in the fire. He says, I came here to protect you, to rescue you. But you've refused me. You've rejected me. You were not willing in your pride. You say, we won't accept you as our protection, as our Messiah. We're going to do it ourselves. And so they're prisoners of their own whitewashed tombs. And what choice do we make today? Do we receive the protection through faith that Jesus offers? Or do we try to go it our own? Now, we know that our own sinful, fleshly hearts are just like the Pharisees. And that's why today's moral is not just, don't be like the Pharisees. The moral is, we need Jesus. And I want us to go back, and I want us to hear these words and contrast the Pharisees with Jesus, the true and better leader and protector of Israel. When he said in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, we know that Jesus, the true and better Moses, came to be the ultimate go-between between God and man. And he's not just delivering God's word. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He says in verse 3, do and observe what they say, but not what they do. Jesus came and was the only human who's always walked the talk. He's done everything that he said to do. In verse 4, they tie you down with heavy burdens that they're not willing to lift. But we know our God, our Savior, does not place heavy burdens on us, but bore our burdens on himself. And he shouldered the heaviest burden of all so that we would never have to be weighed down again. He says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. In verse 5, it says, they do their deeds just to be seen by others. Right? And we know that Jesus, he ultimately only cared about one thing, pleasing and obeying and trusting his father. That's why he was always getting away just to be with his dad. That's the one he loved more than anybody. In verse 6, they love the place of feasts and the best seats of the synagogues. But our Savior came and he ate with sinners And he sat at the lowest point of the table, washing the defeat of the disciples. Verse 7, they love the greetings. They love to be called rabbi. And he goes on to say in 8 through 10, there is but one ultimate teacher, one ultimate rabbi, one ultimate Christ. But the one who was Christ, he was called insults by the very ones that he was actively dying for. And in verse 11, it says, the greatest among you 
shall be your servant. If that doesn't describe Jesus, I don't know what does. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus became the least of these. God himself, the only one whose name is worthy of being lifted high, he descended into our space, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And what happened when the greatest of these became our servant and humbled himself? God lifted him up. And he gave him the name that's above every name that everybody, every tongue would confess, every knee would bow that Jesus is Christ our Lord. So he's calling out the Pharisees today. But it's not from a place of arrogant heights. It was on the journey to the ultimate depths to die for these Pharisees, to protect them as a hen protects its chicks. You see, pride says, my will be done tries to elevate ourselves, And he says very clearly here, if you try to lift yourself up, you will be brought down. You will be humbled and put in your place ultimately. But humility says, thy will be done. And I trust you. And as we humble ourselves before the creator God, here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that when I stop trying to elevate myself, I'm given ultimate value and elevation in and with the person of Christ. I'm lifted with him to the right hand of the Father. To rule and reign over the known universe for eternity with Jesus. There is no higher elevation than that. May we be ones who humble ourselves before our God so that he would lift us up instead of trying to lift up ourselves to be brought down low. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was not one of these Pharisees, that Jesus didn't come concerned with his, his own rights and his own approval from other people, but he came to serve and love people. We thank you that he did what none of the rest of us could do, lived only to please you and love you and trust you and obey you. That He lived that perfect life that, that none of us here could have lived. And Father, we know, and I see in my own heart as I read this text, it reads me. And I know there are people in this room today who are hearing some hard words. I pray that they would hear them from your, your place of love. That where we need to repent of our own pharisaical pride and hypocrisy, that what we're doing on the outside does not match our actual hearts, or we can't change our hearts. That's why Jesus came. That we would humble ourselves before our Savior. And that we would find in Christ, as we, as, as we surrender to him and humble ourselves before you and him, that we find the value and the dignity and the worth and the approval and the validation that we could never, other people could never give us that that would satisfy us anyway. That we would only look to Christ what we can never find from another source. That we would make it all about Jesus, the true and better Moses, the ultimate leader of Israel, the ultimate savior of the human race. That we'd be lifted high in him, giving him all the glory for the good work he's doing in and through us. It's in his humble servant Lord's name that we pray. Amen.